The following message by Alistair Begg is made available by Truth For Life. For more information, visit us online at truthforlife.org. Now, we left ourselves with a little bit of a challenge before we share in communion this evening. We need to turn back to John chapter 8. Those who were present this morning know that we set ourselves the challenge of verses 31 to 38, and we found ourselves there because the next truly, truly along our path is found in verse 34, where Jesus says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin.'" And we uh, covered point number one, which was noticing in the opening verses Jesus was giving instruction to aspiring disciples. And then we went on to consider the reaction of these religious Jews to Jesus' statement. They were uh, aware of the fact that the way in which he framed his words made it perfectly clear to them, indeed unavoidable, that the assumption on the part of Jesus was that they themselves were enslaved. And, of course, they didn't like the sound of that. Religion often doesn't. Uh, You don't realize who we are. We are the offspring of Abram, and so on. And what we left for us to handle was to address the source of this freedom, which is uh, the freedom that is, at the end of verse uh, uh, 36, free indeed, free indeed. And Jesus has set this up with his truly, truly, which is essentially, I tell you most solemnly, And what he goes on to tell us is that the problem in terms of enslavement is not an external problem, but that the ultimate enemy of freedom is on the inside. That's what he's explaining. And he says it very straightforwardly, doesn't he? Um, uh, the, The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The sun sets you free. But the fact of the matter is, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, he's not in this instance saying that every sinful act equals slavery, although that is actually the case. But what he's saying is, and uh, John captures this very well when he writes about Christian assurance in his first letter, where he uses this phraseology, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. That's that's the notion. The the idea of not an intermittent... um, engagement, either an outburst of anger or of lust or whatever it might be, but that that has now become the established pattern of our minds and, as a result of that, of our actions. And Jesus is saying quite categorically that when a person is in that condition, they are enslaved to sin whether they realize it or not. It's very important that we're clear in our minds what the Bible teaches, and that is that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, that our hearts are fallen, that they are, as Luther says, they're they're curved in upon ourselves, and we're oriented to ourselves and to our own desires. Uh, The same kind of notion Peter covers in his second letter, where just in a sentence he says, a man is a slave— to whatever controls him. A man is a slave to whatever controls him. Not only does the practice of sin prove that one is a slave to sin, but the practice of sin actually enslaves us. 
And we could, if we were in a different context, tease this out in a number of ways. Uh, you can tease them out in your, in your own mind. At a very simple level, as we were taught as children in Scotland, I remember the first time it was illustrated to me, somebody uh, asked me to come out. They want to use me as an illustration. They took a piece of thread. They tied two of my fingers together, and they asked me to break the thread, which actually at that point I was able to do. They then tied it a second time around. By the time they'd gone to a third or a fourth, it was impossible for me to, to break free. And then they gave us this little line, which I think is familiar to you by now, sow a thought and reap an action, sow an action and reap a habit, sow a habit and reap a character, sow a character and reap a destiny. So that sin is not only an expression of our enslavement, but the more that we are prepared to go down that road, the more we become enslaved. It is perfectly obvious in certain areas of addiction and so on. And indeed, addiction has become such a, such a large part of the uh, psychiatric and social welfare of our nation, which is actually testifying to the very enslavement that Jesus is addressing here. Now, we need to acknowledge, too, that this runs counter to contemporary thinking, because contemporary thinking is the reverse of this. If you go and uh, explain to somebody that you're having difficulty in this way, they'll tell you that the problem is outside of you. It is that people have interfered with you, or they are placing constraints upon you, and you don't want to have anybody constraining you or disavowing your freedom to be what you're supposed to be. And if you look inside of yourself, you will be able to make sense of that. Well, that's why, again, we say to one another routinely, we better be considering all that is presented to us in the framework of our lives through the grid of our Scriptures. Because what Jesus is saying here is the Word of God. It is the truth of God. He is the truth of God. So that the Bible says that from the very beginning, our pattern by nature is to reject God's wisdom, is to rebel against God's authority, and is to suppress the truth about God himself. And if you think about that for a moment or two, you realize that that's fairly obvious as we consider our own lives and as we look around. Now, how does that express itself? Well, in a number of ways. Simply that God has given to us, if you like, the Maker's instructions. He said, this is how life is to be lived. I made you. I fashioned you. And uh, I have given you uh, the instructions for life uh, in my book. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not a very good um, instruction reader. Um, I have people that do that for me. <laughs> One person. <laughs> uh, Sue's very detailed on that, and so I'd say, you, you do it and tell me what to do. But uh, I, and sometimes I launch off ahead of the game and realize, oh, you made a complete mess of the whole thing. You know, the, you've got screws going in 15 directions, and nothing will eventually look the way it's supposed to look. Why don't you pay attention to the Maker's instructions? Well, because the Maker's instructions say things about marriage. They say things about sex. They, they say things about purity. They say things about honesty. They say things that are all regarded in contemporary culture as man-made constraints with a religious tinge that will prevent you from being all that you might be. The Bible says, no, you've got it completely upside down. Did you ever as a child lie on the floor and, and look up at the ceiling long enough to wonder whether you were actually on the ceiling or on the floor? Is anybody who does that? Anyone? It's because I think I have a psychiatric condition otherwise. 
Well, you know, life was pretty boring in Glasgow on a Saturday, you know. It's pouring outside. What should I do? I just lie on the floor and imagine I'm on the ceiling. But that's it. Our world is upside down. It's upside down. It's a contemporary article of faith that you can be whatever you choose to be. And the ultimate expression of it in the present climate is, of course, choose from a variety of genders. Incidentally, that is only a further expression of that same mentality which is pervasive throughout our culture. The idea, it is actually, is, you know, it's a, it's a statement of faith that I can choose to be whatever I want to be and that nobody tells me how to live my life because I am the center of my own universe. I believe that I should be able to do what I want to do without anyone interfering at all. Of course, what happens in that is it doesn't work. It doesn't work, because it is the embodiment of self-centeredness. And when I'm a self-centered person, my needs come first. They come first before anybody else, before my wife. Now, I've got a real problem if she's operating on the same basis. When my needs come first, when I'm self-centered, then I will seek to use people to achieve my own objectives, to get out of situations what I want out of situations. And the more that I do that, the more I become enslaved to that kind of mentality. And this is the sin. This is the bondage from which we are liberated through Jesus. Augustine, in his uh, book, his Confessions, has a long quote on this, and I want to read it to you. I hope you like it. This is what Augustine says. He says, At times, a man's slave, worn out by the commands of an unfeeling master—so I'm working for Mr. Jones, and he's driving me nuts— and he's wearing me out. That slave then finds rest in running away. Whither, he says, can the servant of sin flee? Himself he carries with him wherever he flees. An evil conscience flees not from itself. It has no place to go. It follows itself. Yea, he cannot withdraw from himself, for the sin he commits is within. He has committed sin to obtain some bodily pleasure. The pleasure passes away, the sin remains. What delighted is gone, the sting has remained behind. And then he writes, Oh, evil bondage. Now, that's what Jesus is addressing here. And it's wonderful. I mean, it's so good, isn't it? Look at that verse. The slave does not remain in his house forever. The son remains forever. A slave has no permanent place in the family. Uh, Think of upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey, or whatever you want, and all those folks that were down the stairs in the kitchen. Uh, They could be dismissed at a moment if they didn't do a very good job. They could be sold. They could be given away. And the presence of someone who is living in an enslaved position 
is, is completely de- determined, his continuance is determined by his or her performance. As long as I perform well, maybe I'll be able to stay. And if I don't perform well, maybe they'll get rid of me. That's why the slave does not remain in the house forever. But the son, the son cannot be anything other than the son. And ultimately, the son here, the ultimate son, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying is that when men and women are united to me, when they become sons of the heavenly Father, then there's freedom. But as long as he says to these uh, Jewish listeners at this immediate context, as long as you— Uh, reject my words, you live in servile and slavish fear. And if you think about the ultimate fear of life being the fear of death, you realize what an enslavement it is to live your whole life realizing that there is an an inevitability about this that we cannot handle at all, unless somebody sets us free from that fear. How could we be set free from the fear of death? Because the wages of sin is death. Sin pays wages. We know that. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes in that way at the end of chapter 6, which is why we read it. You see, the religious person views God not as a father, but as a boss. And if you, if, if you view God as like the boss, then again— the only way that you're going to be able to make it is to keep obeying the commands, hopefully making the boss pleased with you. And what that inevitably does is it creates phenomenal anxiety. I don't know if he's pleased with me. I don't know if God is pleased with me. How can I know that he's pleased with me? So anxiety on the one hand, and then anger on the other hand because in my self-assertiveness, I'm tempted to believe that I'm not getting what I deserve out of this program. I tried to be a good person. I started to go to church. I actually began reading one of those through the Bibles and so on, through the New Testament in a year. And, And here I am. Is that not because you don't understand who God is? You see, when God is your Father, then all of that goes away. That's why Jesus says elsewhere, if you, being earthly or evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your your heavenly Father give good gifts to them that ask him? Only Jesus is qualified to set us free. Only Jesus sets us free from the settled habit of rejecting his wisdom, rebelling against his authority, and enthroning ourselves. But as long as his word has no place in us—that's verse 37—I know you're the offspring of Abram. I know you have a great lineage. I know you have a great background. But the fact is, you'd like to kill me. And the reason you would is because my word finds no place in you. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You remember when we come to Easter time and the gospel writers tell us of the way in which Jesus was arrested and so on, and you come to uh, the end of the, the section in Matthew's gospel where he records this. 
This is 27 of Matthew. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him. They bound him. They tied him up. They curtailed his liberty. They made it impossible for him to escape, and then they killed him. In other words, Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, gave up his freedom, was bound and enslaved in order that we might be set free from the bondage of our own sinful propensities. There's no story like this in all the religions of the world. And as we think about coming around the Lord's table tonight, we recognize that all the time, hundreds of years before Jesus came, the prophets were writing about these very things and pointing out the very stupidity of man without God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah writes. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not a very pleasant diagnosis, is it? It's not easy, I think, to be a doctor, especially when you have to take those reports and those blood tests and finally come out and say what's going on. I mean, sometimes, I guess, it's the good news, but often it's fairly daunting. And you see, self-centered, self-righteous, self-oriented humanity has no way to deal with this except when Jesus opens our eyes. What the Bible is saying is that we're all like stupid sheep. We wander away from him. We've got self-righteous excuses as to why we do what we do. We've got futile attempts at remedying our own condition. We'd love to set ourselves free, but we can't. And when he sets us free, it's an amazing freedom. Freedom not to do as I please, but to do what pleases him the freedom to do what I ought, because doing that now pleases me. You think about it in marital terms. I mean, the, the, the curtailing of one's own freedom in a love relationship makes it possible then to serve others. And Christ epitomizes this because he has curtailed his own freedom in order that we might then know the freedom that only he can bring. Can I just give you two quotes before we sing a hymn and, and go on? The, two, the hymn writers helped me with so much of this stuff. And this is one of my favorite hymns uh, by George Matheson, who lived in the 19th century. You know these words, but I want you to listen to them, because this, this, is, the, this is the great mystery of Christian freedom. It goes like this. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conquer be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. I can do this. I can fix this. I've got this. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. 
My will is not my own till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach the monarch's throne, it must his crown resign. It only stands unbent amid the clashing strife when on thy bosom it is lent and found in thee its life. And better still, Cowper. Dear William Cowper, this is a poem entitled Love Constraining to Obedience. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has—that is, strength of nature—and what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. That's it. God is a boss. All I can do is hope that I please him enough or make sure that I don't annoy him. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress, I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success, because we can't do it. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. What shall I do was then the word that I may worthier grow? What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. And Jesus says, you religious guys with such a terrific background, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Father, thank you that your word is your word. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to turn to it again in this evening hour. I pray, Lord, that any cloudiness that is there in our minds as a result of my ineptitude may be banished, that the clarity that we finally rest in is the clarity which comes by way of the Holy Spirit applying things to us. You know every one of us. You know where we are tonight. And now as we seek to come around this table, invited by Jesus himself, the one whose hands, uh, when he fed the breakfast to them on that beach, bore the scars of the punishment, his wrists marked by the cords that bound him, bound in order that we might be free, punished in order that we may not face punishment on that day, dying in order that we might live forever. How marvelous! How wonderful! Amen. You've been listening to a message by Alistair Begg from Truth For Life, and you're welcome to pass this sermon along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Truth For Life. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Truth For Life. For additional information about how you can support Truth For Life, please visit us online at truthforlife.org. 
There you'll find free message downloads from Alistair Begg, as well as links to our podcast, mobile apps, and other resources to help you grow in your Christian faith. Again, the website is truthforlife.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to stay in touch with Truth For Life and Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, where the learning is for living.